0: Well, good morning, everyone. Must be June. I think some folks said, when it gets to June, I'm going to be game on. Glad to have you. Uh, it's a blessing to see as many folks as, uh, as we have. And uh, every week we continue to see more and more folks. And we're, we're just thankful uh, to have you guys with us this morning. So I wanted you to start by thinking about a, a question. What if you could get everything? you wanted. Like, like imagine you get a knock on the door and you go and you open the door and there's a guy there standing there and he says, hey, I'm Michael and I'm an angel and God told me to come and give you whatever you wanted. I mean, how would you view that? I would view that as very good news. I mean, this is a really, really good day. But the question about whether that's good news or bad news all is dependent on this question. How good are you at wanting? Have you ever thought about that? How good are you at wanting? You'd think, well, I'm, I'm actually really good at wanting because, Craig, before when you said that, even before I started thinking, I had five things that I wanted. That's not really what I'm asking. I'm asking, how good are you at wanting the kinds of things you should be wanting? There's a guy named William Young, and he, he said of an experience he had, he said, if something like this happened to me when I was in my 30s, I would have been destroyed, and I would have destroyed my family along with me. Say, something like this happened. I mean, is he talking about a divorce? Is he talking about a car accident? Is he talking about going bankrupt? Is he talking about losing a job? If something like this happened to me when I was in my 30s, what he was talking about was writing a book that sold 200 million copies. See, at the age of 50 that he wrote this book that sold 200 million copies, he was able to look back and said, if I got what I wanted as a young author in my 30s, it would have destroyed me and it would have destroyed all of my relationships. And so William Young is essentially saying, I actually wasn't really very good at wanting. I'm a little bit better at wanting now. And so maybe you're thinking, well, hey, I'm, I'm a better wanter at least than William Young. There's a guy named Dan Gilbert, he's a, a psychologist, psychology professor at Harvard, and he does all sorts of studies to help assess how good we are at wanting. And he says that in America, most people are very bad at wanting. In fact, he calls that we often miswant. want A human issue is that we want things that in the end actually will make us less desirable than we think they will. So Gilbert's done all sorts of tests where he says, hey, how happy are you? A person answers that question. What do you think will make you happier? He helps them to get that. And then at the end of the experiment, he says, how happy are you? And people are either equally happy or less happy after getting the very things that they want. And so Gilbert says of people, we have a problem, which is we're not very good at wanting things that are actually helping us to have purpose and meaning and joy and significance in our lives. And many of the things that we want, when we end up getting them, we end up being less happy than we are to begin with. In our parable this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 12, we're going to find that Jesus addresses specifically this concept of miswanting. He's going to help offer a corrective in a common area, the area of finances and possession and wealth, that Jesus finds that we may often miswant things and is going to help to offer us a corrective as we seek to follow him. And so we do find ourselves in Luke chapter 12, and in the first verse we realize Jesus is in the process of teaching thousands of people Somewhere along the way, maybe Jesus takes a breath, and somebody interjects in there, and they have something to say. This is now 13th verse, and he says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So what do you do whenever your dad has died, and your older brother is the executor of the estate, and he either hasn't given you any of his property, or he hasn't given you a fair amount of the property? And especially if you're lower class in first, century, uh, in first century Jew, what you would do is you would go and you'd find a trusted rabbi and you'd say, hey, we want you to decide to arbitrate this on our behalf. So what this person is doing is a very common thing that a person does whenever the inheritance doesn't seem to be working out fairly. But Jesus does not want to play that role. And he said, friend, who assigned you to be judge and arbitrator over us? That, that Jesus is recognizing, in fact, he's pulling away, I don't want to be judge and I don't want to be arbitrator in the middle of this situation. Now, I think it's important for us to realize that Jesus is not saying, you know what, I don't, I don't like to judge. I mean, judge not lest ye be judged yourself. I mean, I don't like to be in that position. There's lots of biblical texts where Jesus is and will judge, but there's something about this context where Jesus says, I'm not going to stand as a judge in here. Jesus also does not want to play the role of arbitrator, which the root of that word is a divider, a person who divides things. At the end of this chapter, chapter 12, verses 50, 51, you're going to find Jesus, in fact, is dividing families apart. So, so maybe you think, okay, well, maybe Jesus just doesn't like to get involved in sibling rivalry. I have two older brothers, and you know, when they start going at it, it's like, mm-mm, I don't want to get in the middle of that. Problem is, two chapters before, what did Jesus do with Mary and Martha? He got right in the middle of a sibling rivalry, made some judgments, said, this is right, this is wrong, this is what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing. So why in this case is Jesus refusing to play the role of judge and arbitrator? Well, it seems to me that if the older brother is not sharing what's fair or reasonable in the inheritance, the reason for that is likely because he's kind of a greedy guy. And as we're about to find out, Jesus is going to insinuate that the younger brother is also greedy. So the question is who wins between two greedy guys who want the same piece of property? This is what we call a classic lose-lose situation that if we're going to argue and and, and, and bicker and, and fight over land, and both people who end up with the land are greedy, it's not going to be a blessing or a benefit to anyone. And so Jesus decides he's not going to, in any way, get involved in this dispute or disagreement. Then in the 15th verse, what Jesus does is, it, the text says, and then he said to them. So this response is not directly to this man. And I think it's important for us to realize, Jesus is saying, about what I'm about to say is not just specific to this man, but it is something that is common to the thousands who are listening. And so Jesus offers a word of warning. Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, because a man's life does not consist in the sum of their possessions, in the abundance of what they have. So this is a message Jesus offers to the crowd, a word of warning. And his warning is about greed. How many of you struggle with greed? I associate the word greed with the word more. That's really what greed is, right? It just, it just wants more. It wants more, it gets more, it receives more, it's all about more, more, more. In fact, greed always has to have a sparring partner or somebody with which it's competing. So there's no absolute line whereby you say, if you make X number of dollars or you find yourself in X situation, then you're greedy, but if you make less than that or have less than that, you're not greedy. Greed always looks at another person and just says, as long as I have more than that other person. So here's a a question that you might think there's a pretty easy answer to. Would you rather make $75,000 a year or would you rather make $100,000 a year? You know what psychologists have found out? It just depends how you frame that question. When they ask the question, would you rather make $75,000 a year at a company where everybody else makes $50,000 or would you rather make $100,000 a year at a company where everybody else makes $250,000, the majority of people say, I would rather make $75,000. Because it's not about an absolute number. What they're saying is what? I just want to make more than everyone else. They've done the same thing with vacations. You know, would you rather two weeks of vacation or four weeks of vacation? And that answer is just based on, is everybody getting more than me or less than me? And so people take an absolute number in a lower way as long as it's higher than people that are around them. And so that's why Jesus is warning about this thing of, of greed. Because every time you elevate something then the next person has to then elevate above that level and it becomes unlimited, this greed and its hunger. And greed can destroy and dissolve fundamental things in communities. When we think about greed, we often think about it like how it affects me. Greed impacts communities in dramatic ways because greed is a communal sin because whatever you're making, I'm gonna now make more and it's gonna create the kind of a situation these two brothers find themselves in, which is you're gonna sacrifice a relationship all in an effort to get more and more possessions. And so Jesus says that one's life does not consist of the abundance of possessions. And the question we're gonna wrestle with is is that something you believe? Is that something you really believe that a man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions? Think about your job choices in your life. Think about your purchasing decisions. Take inventory of your life and ask yourself whether you've bought into this lie. Whether you've been guilty of miswanting in deciding that man's life maybe does consist of the limit of their possessions. And to help illustrate this, Jesus is going to tell us a parable. This parable has four parts to it. The first is a trigger event. The second is a problem, then there's a solution, and then we're going to have a God's assessment of it. So we're going to walk through this parable. So here's the trigger event. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. We need to note here, the man starts off as a rich man. This is not a rags-to-riches story. This is a story about the rich getting richer. The other thing that we realize is that when Jesus tells this parable, he wants us to recognize that the land produced abundantly. So Jesus is not tying this to his work or his effort. We are to see this as God's gracious provision for this man. Something that he doesn't deserve, something that's unexpected and it's overly abundant. And so the land is what produces for this man. That trigger event causes the problem. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Now, the man is not saying, man, I should have built some storage containers here in advance. He did, but what he built in advance was insufficient to handle the overwhelming surplus. It's almost as if whenever he did his business numbers projection, he he estimated a three times increase, and then when the crop comes in, it's a ten times increase, and the spot that he had allocated for what he thought he would produce is now not enough. And so what do you do when you get an abundant surplus, a surprising blessing and benefit? What are you to do? And that's the very problem that this man is struggling with, and it's what he's vexed with. When you're insufficiently prepared for surplus, what do you do? So we have this solution. He said to himself, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store up all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So he has this very future-oriented plan, doesn't he? I will. See the repetition of that phrase? I will tear down my barns. I will build up new barns. I will say to my soul. This is a person who seems like they're in control of their fate. A person who's looking to the future, who's who's got that movement and that orientation. We also recognize this is a person who takes ownership of everything they come in contact with. You notice the repetition of my, my barn, my crops, my soul. He's the owner of all of these things. And the subsequent result is, now that he has everything that he's ever needed, it's time for him to do what? Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like the American dream. That sounds like retirement. I mean, how many of us think that's what life is about, is getting to a place where the barns are full enough, and now I can just relax and check out of life and just watch life go by as I'm just simply sitting on the sidelines and relaxing. And I want you to imagine, before we get to God's assessment of this, I want you to imagine... If there were no assessment from God and this story were in the Bible, would you see this as a positive example or a negative example? In other words, if this guy came to town and he was doing a lecture series, how many of you would go and his lecture series is how to build wealth so big your barns can't even contain it. This is the kind of a person you would ask to write a book on how to manage your your fields and your crops. This is the kind of person that if your kid said, you know, I think I'm gonna grow up and I'm gonna be like that guy down the road who has the hugest barns, you as a parent might be proud of them. This is the kind of person that you might invite over to have lunch with your family and say, tell my kids about how to manage their resources. I mean, I think in our culture and in Jesus' culture too, this guy here has it all together. Remember, we've said every parable has a surprise, a twist, something that we didn't see coming. And the surprise and the twist comes now in God's assessment of the situation. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is being demanded of you. And all the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So does with those who store up for themselves treasures, but are not rich towards God. See, the twist of this parable is that this guy gets called a fool, somebody who we've actually been resonating with, somebody who we're like, oh, if I could grow up and be like that guy, God now calls him a fool. So why is he a fool? And we're going to look at three reasons, I think, that come out of this text that kind of show his foolishness. The first thing that we see is that the man did not properly differentiate between what was mine and what is God's. See, there's certain things that he takes ownership, and he says, mine, you'll even notice that he said, of his soul. He said, this is my soul. Uh, And then God's going to say that that very night, his soul or his life, it's the exact same word that's used in, in, in both places. It's sometimes translated differently. But the same word, God says, now your soul is being demanded of you this very night. The word for being demanded of you is not like we use demanded, like give me that, you know, give it to me now. But demanded is this word that has a sense of something that previously belongs to someone who they're asking for it back. So think about the, a library book that you borrow and the library calls and says, we want our book back. They're demanding it back. Why? Because they owned it and they only lent it to you. We see the word used again in Luke chapter 6, verse 30, where Jesus says, hey, whenever you give your cloak to someone, don't go and ask for it back. That's the exact same word that's used there. So this man thought, who owned his soul? He thought, it's my soul. I can do whatever I want with my life. My life is mine to use and spend however I wish. And where he was off base and why he was foolish was because God actually said, your soul is my soul. But God owned the man's soul, and he owned the man's life. See, we become fools in this life when we start to think we own things that we don't own. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. All our possessions, God owns. Our very lives, God owns. And this man was a fool, but he got confused about what he owned and what God owned. The second reason that he is a fool is that he stopped working when his responsibilities really got started. See, there's this long theme in the Bible that God blesses us in order to do what? In order to be a blessing to others. Paul says man works in order that he might have something to give. So at the very point when this man gets this overabundant kind of crop and wealth, this is when we say, we think he's going to say, all right, my real work starts now. My real responsibility starts now. God bless me, and now he's going to expect a lot of me, and there's going to be a lot of important decisions to make about who I need to help with this, what I need to do with this. But instead, whenever his responsibility got started, he said, this is time for me to stop and check out of life. Now I'm going to rest and eat and drink and be merry. I'm thankful to be a part of a congregation where we have multiple generations, and I'm thankful as a younger person, I can still say that, I hope, as a younger person, that there's examples of people who have used their retirement really, really well and wisely. People retire and then they're volunteering. They're helping. They're being involved in other people's lives, which is the right example rather than this foolish example of saying, hey, I have everything I need, and now I'm going to check out of life. So you're foolish when your responsibilities start and you decide to check out from your life responsibilities. The third thing that this uh, man did that deserves the title of fool is he miswanted. He wanted the wrong things. He thought that his life would be about an abundance of possessions. And he made that what his entire life was about, was seeking these possessions. Now, it's not until we get later in the chapter we'll find out what we really should want. Jesus will say in 1231 um, that we should strive for the kingdom. That's proper wanting. But right now what Jesus is doing is he's correcting one form of miswanting that this man is guilty of and that many of us also will find ourselves guilty of too. And he's a fool because he doesn't recognize both the limits or the potential of money. Money is very limited in what it can contribute to our sense of purpose, meaning, satisfaction, and well-being. I mean, life is very limited, and if we think that money is going to do far more than it can do, we are going to be surprised by, we're going to keep running into walls, we're like, man, I thought money could do all this, and yet money seems so powerless in so many situations. So we have to first realize the limitations of money in terms of what it can do for our well-being. But then we also have to realize is the potential for money when we begin to learn to give money. Jesus says, what of money? It is more blessed to what? To give than receive. What Jesus is saying is the potential of money is when you start giving it away, it will then give you more of a sense of purpose, more of a sense of meaning, more of a sense of well-being because you participate in giving it because you realize how limited it is, therefore you give it and now you find it has new potential in the ways that it can bless other people. And that's what Jesus is calling this man to do. But in order to do that, you have to learn to know when enough is enough. Do you have a sense of how much is enough for you? How, how big are your barns? That you say, you know what? There's no need to build anything bigger here. They did a study of Yale graduates and Yale graduates tend to make a little bit more than the average person. Uh, and they said, how much is enough? Upon graduation, these Yale graduates, they said, how much is enough? And they said, $75,000 a year. If I make $75,000 a year, that's enough. Now, most Yale graduates, after 10 years of graduating, are earning an average of $100,000. And so they asked them, how much is enough? Guess what they said at that point? When John D. Rockefeller was asked how much is enough, his answer was just one more dollar. So we need to know how much is enough. Um, I I had planned to hand something out, and then I realized I had unintentionally committed the mortal sin, which is I can't do any handouts. So there's this thing called the Internet. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, If you go to our Facebook page or if you go to the YouTube Um, Video. there's a link for something called the graduated tie that I'd encourage you to check that out as a real practical way of saying, determining how much is enough and looking at your responsibilities and obligations from that. Because if we don't decide how much is enough and if greed is just about a little bit more, we will never, ever get to the point that another barn doesn't make sense for us. In order to illustrate this aspect of enough and of our pursuit of enough, I want to just tell a story, and this story will serve as our conclusion. It's actually a story I stole from Leo Tolstoy. It's called How Much Land Is Enough? And I've taken a few liberties with this story. But basically it goes like this. There was a guy who grew up in a kind of a lower class setting and situation and his neighbor was a wealthy landowner and she was a real jerk to him mistreated him and so as a young boy he said you know I'm never going to be in the position when I'm an older that people can bot when I'm older that people can boss me around just cuz I don't have as much as them so what I'm going to do is I'm going to become one of the biggest most well-known landowners in the whole kingdom and so he did everything he could to get land. You know, first of all, it would be uh, you know, acquiring five acres of land, and then he'd acquire 10 acres of land and 15 acres of land, and eventually 150 acres of land. And before long, in his area, he was one of the largest landowners, and he really liked the respect that he was getting now that he had this land. Um, through some different conversations, he heard about a, a community, a group of people who were selling 150,000 acres of land, and he wanted it. Because not only would that make him the largest landowner in his area, but in the whole entire kingdom, he would be the largest landowner. So he went and he met with the people who were overseeing this this group of land, and they started bartering and negotiating and all that, and they weren't getting anywhere. And eventually, one of the elders of the group selling the land came up with an idea. He said, how about we do this? You give us a 1,000 rupees, which is not very much money. You give us a 1,000 rupees of money. And what we'll do is one morning at sunup, you can start walking from this place. And everywhere that you encircle and you get back to that place by sundown, you can have as much land as you've walked around. When he thought, hey, I'm a pretty young guy, I'm in pretty decent shape, I think I'm going to take this offer. So he pays the money and the day comes for his time to walk around. As the sun rises, he starts off. And of course, he's walking at a pretty brisk pace because the faster he goes, the more he knows he can circle the land. Gets to about noon. He's of course feeling tired and and fatigued and he's thinking, you know what? I really should start closing in this circle to make sure I get back to that spot because if I don't get back to that spot, I'm not gonna get any land. Um, But he thought, you know what? Maybe if I just pick up the pace, I can get just a few more acres of land in here. And so he widens his circle a little bit more. He starts a slower jog as he goes around. He gets to the middle of the afternoon, 2, 3 in the afternoon, and he's starting to get worried now. He can see the position of the sun. He knows how far he has to go to make it back, and he starts full-on sprinting because he knows that there's no other way he's going to make it back, and so his heart is beating like crazy. He's sweating, and his fingers are twi- tingling from all it. but he's sprinting. The landowners think he's not going to make it back, and just as the sun's just getting ready to go below the horizon, he crosses the line and the landowners are kind of uh, weeping the occasion. Uh, those who came with this man, his servants were so happy. And the one servant rushed over to congratulate him, only to find that he was laying there dead at the finish line from an apparent heart attack. And the landowners did this. They said, as a sign of our generosity, we will give you a plot of land that is three feet by six feet, which is all the land that a man needs. And in many ways, that's simply what Jesus is saying, that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. I pray that we pursue what God wants us to pursue, kingdom things, that we don't find ourselves guilty of miswanting, wanting things that add nothing of value to our lives or to other lives, that we pursue instead God's call and blessing in our lives. And so as a word of blessing, I pray that the Lord will bless you and keep you. That the Lord would make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. That the Lord would turn his face towards you and give you peace. And as we enter into a world that I think is compelled to bring us to a place of greed, uh, I pray that we will go knowing that we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit